namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa bhadandam mansangam namaskaramu Nice to be back here after it's been three years since I was uh, here at Inside Santa Cruz for a Friday evening, Saturday day long. So uh, this is my first time in the, the new space when I was here three years ago. It was in planning and under construction and remodeling. So it's just kind of a empty, dusty space <laughs> in here. And the meeting was over in that little storefront across the way. So it's definitely a step up and it's like, <laughs> like a really uh, lovely space uh, that uh, we all have here now. When I was uh, communicating uh, with Jill and Bruce about this weekend and um, talking about potential topics, one of the suggestions that was uh, put out there was uh, uh, maybe centering around practice in daily life. <laughs> and um, I thought about that a bit and then uh, I just have this reflection in my mind that oftentimes that's a phrase that's um, used, particularly like on meditation retreats, uh, particularly as you go sort of like towards day nine, ten of, of the last part of the retreat. Then the uh, the traditional you know offering is sometimes well now that we've had this week of or this ten days of practice together in intense meditation, and we're about to end it. How do we bring this into daily life as we re-enter daily life? And um, often reflected on that, that um, particularly as as you know, we practice more and more, and many of you are longtime practitioners. I think, I suspect um, that um, uh, it becomes less of a uh, a matter of um, how to bring, say, the benefits from a, a period of retreat uh, into. Uh, a completely different scene in, in, into our daily life, how to apply that, uh, and more towards one of experiencing uh, the practice as our center of attention. The practice is our life. And uh, how can we accommodate our daily activities around that? So that our, the center of our focus is not our daily life, and then how can we bring in some bits and pieces of mindfulness or you know, sanity into that? But just the opposite of, um, um, okay, practice is where it's at, and how do I uh, experience my practice uh, as the center of activity and adjust my uh, daily life into that? So came up 
Well, maybe I'll just um, talk a little bit about over the weekend, not necessarily tonight so much, but tomorrow especially, uh, talk about the path, uh, the practice in its entirety and how it integrates one with another. Because a lot of the practice in the West is centered around meditation retreats, specific periods of time for intense uh, setting down of everything else in, in one's life and honing in right on meditation only. And um, that certainly has its benefits and uses. I do that as a monk. We do that at the monastery for periods of time um, to really just focus on the formal side of practice. But uh, if you're seeking freedom uh, and truth, that's uh, a it's a 24/7 kind of a thing. Um, it can't be isolated into you know one or two or three retreats a year and then just kind of fudging your way through the rest of the time. <laughs> but um, for that, I could do that. I sure would do it. <laughs> uh, but uh, um, you know, whether you're a lay person or a monastic, or whatever. You know, clothes you find yourself in if you're if you're sincerely looking for for freedom uh, it's a it's a full-time occupation mm-hmm. and so the task is just m- more learning uh, how to integrate uh, all of the activities all of the opportunities uh, through the day uh, through our uh, weeks and months uh, whether we're engaged in a livelihood for Know, for uh, financial means to, to pay the bills, that kind of stuff, or whether we're retired and able to have more open time, or whether we're a junior monk or a you know senior monk, uh, whether we've got very few duties, either in our lay life or in the monastic world, or we've got lots and lots of duties uh, as a co-abbot of a busy <coughs> monastery. Um, you know, uh, you you have to make it work, right? and you have to um, really make the practice the center of your existence in whatever form it takes. Engaged, disengaged, quiet, busy, whatever. So I was thinking that you know, for this weekend, tomorrow, I'll be spending some time going through various aspects of the path and how they integrate with each other uh, rather than as uh, discrete uh, experiences. And reflecting basically on the um, you know, the essential core of the, of the practice in terms of right view, the Four Noble Truths, uh, and the fact that the Buddha's own search for um, peace and understanding and clarity and an answer to his own questions and confusion it, it came through this recognition of the of of the noble first noble truth of dukkha it's essentially you know the buddha would often say i, mean, I teach i just teach two things dukkha and uh, the ending of dukkha freedom from dukkha uh, unsatisfactoriness suffering in, in its strong sense but the basic uh, sense of uh, most of how we experience life in some way or another uh, isn't giving us a complete sense of of ease and peace of mind that uh, we get caught uh, through our own uh, confusion 
and lack of understanding, and we get caught in um, seeking uh, ways uh, through the world of conditions, seeking ways to end that uh, gnawing sense of incompleteness, uh, uh, that gnawing sense of uh, no matter how good things can get in the conditioned realm, um, but there's always a sense of uh, it's something's missing, something's not right, something's out of out of tune. And you know, the Buddha's own story uh, I've always found very inspiring uh, that uh, despite his life and upbringing in a very privileged uh, noble warrior caste and uh, father being the uh, the head of a, of a kingdom and, and uh, growing up with a lot of uh, material comforts. Um, the, you know, the Buddha, um, through his own observations and explorations, um, saw, uh, say, the heavenly messenger's old age sickness death uh, as uh, uh, questions that would come up in his mind. You know, the the reflection that he came up with is, is you know, why, when I am subject to this old age sickness and death uh, and these unsatisfactory experiences, why do I seek um, stability? Why do I seek um, contentment uh, in that which is also subject to old age sickness and death deterioration? Um, why is that where I'm putting my energy? Um, why am I seeking permanence and stability and security in a world that is inherently unstable, insecure, changing all the time? Why don't I uh, start to explore uh, that um, which will lead me to a true sense of, of long-term uh, happiness, long-term uh, seek something which will give me the long-term welfare and benefit that I'm seeking uh, and that uh, is beyond uh, beyond uh, change, beyond um, beyond the, the kind of suffering that we don't have to experience. Is there a way, is there a way that uh, will lead me to this long-term uh, peace and understanding? And that was the, that recognition of that first noble truth was his motivation uh, to, to, to seek a way out. And I think about my life, uh, you know, it certainly wasn't you know, that level of uh, insight and commitment, uh, but similar, similar thoughts and probably very similar to most of us in the room here, um, that uh, that kind of sense of uh, dis-ease uh, unsatisfactoriness with our world, no matter how much we, we comfort we have and stability we have, there's that, that sense of not being in true, and that's what uh, motivates us to, to, to seek this path. And I you know, just recollect that in my own personal life, um, uh, for the first number of years, I had the, uh, a very strong um, 
uh, sense of, of uh, contentment and happiness within uh, the world that I had created, the uh, lifestyle I had chosen, the people I was uh, surrounding myself with, and and uh, my livelihood, my job as a as a registered nurse, and and uh, certainly had as much comfort as I needed. Um, not wealthy, but good enough. Uh, certainly quite comfortable. And um, yet there was that sense of hmm, not quite, not quite filling the bill here. Uh, sense of wearing the the wrong size shoes, maybe. <laughs> Um, and uh, which always having a kind of a, an interest in more of the philosophical or spiritual sides of life, I uh, decided to really pick this up and, and pursue it a bit more. Um, and then it ended up starting also uh, finding myself in work settings uh, with my with my job uh, as a nurse, uh, gravitating towards uh, not only sickness, which of course is natural for someone in the healthcare field, but but old age and death, and, and worked with uh, older people uh, in a community daycare center, as well as uh, nursing home work, um, and then uh, moving into hospice work, uh, you know, at the very end of life, um, and uh, really gained a lot more uh, insight and impetus into the fact that that's going to be me. You know, <laughs> that's not just those people out there. That's right here, not too long a time. Um, and then, um, so getting some motivation to really explore deeper. And then, uh, also, this was uh, happening in the in the eighties, and I was in Seattle practicing, living in Seattle, and that was at the time when uh, the uh, spec. Uh, specter of AIDS started uh, to come uh, on full force and found myself uh, drawn to working with uh, people who were struggling through those trials and it was a you know for those of you who were around at that time um, you know it was, a, it was pretty much of a war zone you know, pretty intense uh, in this particularly in city areas and um, you know this was full-on you know, not so much necessarily old age, but uh, sickness and death happening messy, <laughs> messy and, and rapidly, uh, and with a lot of confusion and grief and, and despair. And um, I found that to be a very motivating factor uh, towards uh, understanding uh, my own life, uh, even uh, to a greater extent, wanting to say, well, you know, what is this all about? And so with that growing impetus to explore uh, the root cause of real suffering and the gradual uh, coming to into contact with uh, Buddhist teachings uh, is kind of the motivating force for my own path, as I think those kinds of circumstances are for, uh, for many people. And clearly, uh, the motivating force for for the Buddhist search. So, having that firm grounding and that firm understanding in the in the, in the four noble truths, and the fact that um, you know, not only is there this necessity to uh, understand dukkha and its causes, uh, but to um, 
to realize that there's a, a path of freedom. Uh, there is a there is a path that can take us to um, a true and deep understanding of uh, how we can experience the ups and downs of life, but don't have to add uh, additional layers of of uh, the optional kind of dukkha, the kind of dukkha that um, is in uh, resistance to or uh, seeking escape uh, from the world the way it is through uh, normal habitual patterns of um, uh, trying to create a, a reality that uh, can avoid having to look at the, uh, the deeper uh, issues of life. So there is a path, there is a, and there is a, uh, there is a, a way to uh, experience a deep sense of, of peace uh, with whatever the conditions are around us. Uh, one that is actually uh, leads to complete freedom and un- unshakability. So that right view, that deep uh, appreciation of uh, the path uh, and its possibilities, um, is uh, the heart of our our practice in the in the eightfold path. And at the core of it. You know, I think many of us start to realize it's not just a path of, uh, of meditation, um, that it's really a readjustment of, of our priorities, a readjustment of our life, a, re- a readjustment of how we are in the world uh, that's required um, in, its, in its entirety uh, to be able to uh, uh, attain and understand uh, at this deep level. Because there's the, you know, the, there's the, the those really stark examples of um, dukkha in the world, uh, the, the deterioration, the, the change that occurs, uh, and then there's the uh, the ongoing um, forms of stress and, and uh, dissonance that um, we experience even uh, when our bodies and minds are, are relatively healthy, when our relationships are in good stead when our uh, livelihood is, is serving us well. Um, there's all the, the baggage that we've carried around with us for so long. Um, this lifetime, previous lifetimes, if you buy into the, the fact that this isn't the only life that we experience. Um, but just whatever the case, the, the, the conditions of mind um, that lead to um, the conditions of mind and the conditions of the world that we put ourselves into that lead to this uh, constant um, tension and, and stress in our lives. And you know, we were talking in the car on the way down just uh, how the, uh, the world, as many of us uh, experience it now, the high level of uh, information exchange, the technology, the, uh, the intensity uh, and rapidity and the overstimulation that uh, is uh, a strong part of our uh, many, if not most, of our daily lives here. Um, how that um, draws us further and further away from um, that uh, that kind of focus that one needs to have and that simplicity that one needs to have in one's life to to really move back to a deep. Uh, understanding and, and peacefulness uh, that we can experience as human beings that 
create these virtual worlds that are so uh, disembodied and so um, separate from from human reality um, and we get caught up in it and the information exchange that happens the, uh, the amount of time we spend absorbed in devices <laughs> electronics and it's very addictive um, as probably most of us have experienced at times and and um, how we are growing it's, it's easy to grow away from uh, basic human contact uh, within a, in a, in a mentally created world uh, as I'm saying completely disembodied in a sense a virtual world um, where many of our uh, desires and habits and mind states can uh, be played out uh, uh, in some situations without actually having human contact and how sad that is and how we need to be consciously aware of that and working uh, against buying into that uh, focus of reality because it uh, it leads to our just maintaining and establishing um, and constantly falling into these patterns of perception of, of how we see how we experience the world through the, the, the focus of um, our old habits, our old tendencies, the ingrained patterns um, that we essentially create our experience out of. Um, and that it takes a, a return to uh, trying to develop some sort of sense of um, simplicity uh, and uh, coolness uh, and a disengagement from that kind of rapid entanglement uh, with an imaginary world to try and bring us back to more of a sense of, of concrete reality of what it's like to be a human being in a human body relating to other humans <laughs> and that uh, our freedom from the, the tyranny of, of our old perceptual patterns and habits and programs of how we react and then create the whole um, reinforcing nature of our experience um, how um, it takes that level of withdrawal from that virtual world uh, and coming back to uh, a sense of, of um, simplicity in our lives uh, the world isn't moving in that direction so it has to be a conscious attempt to, to step back from that and this, in my mind, uh, I was thinking maybe right livelihood would be a, sort of a, a focus of this evening. Um, and you know, we all know the, the classic definitions, you know, in the Buddhist sense of right livelihood. You know, not engaging in uh, uh, you know uh, trade uh, with uh, intoxicants and poisons and human trade, slavery, and, and uh, uh, like being uh, in in the process, uh, you know, a butcher taking a, uh, for a livelihood, taking the life of animals, and um, you know those various kinds of wrong livelihood. But but um, kind of uh, the right livelihood that's on a more subtle level of how it is that we live our lives, what structures we um, put into our external lives that will influence our internal environment. Um, 
associating with good people, you know, making sure that the associates that we have in our lives, the, uh, the friendships, the relationships, um, are those that are going to be supportive of, of what it is that we want to do. We're social creatures and we're so influenced by the people that we're around um, that uh, if we uh, hang out with people that aren't really interested in uh, this kind of self-realization, Dhamma practice, um, then that's going to have a strong effect on um, where we focus uh, our lives. So we need to, first and foremost, um, come to places like this and, and make you know, the people in our lives, the external supports, um, those that are going to, to support this. And, you know, as monastics, we uh, consciously choose a, 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 what we would call a renunciate form of life, um, which doesn't necessarily need to be like an austere taking of, of the precepts at the level of a monastic, but just that commitment to um, scaling back uh, simplicity uh, in our daily lives, in, our, in the ways we are in the world. Um, Reducing the distraction, reducing the amount of things that we feel like we have to engage in. Um, those, all those things that take us away from that um, restlessness, re- restless energy that feels so uncomfortable, and we think that if we just, you know, do something else to uh, give us a bit of pleasure, that um, we'll, you know, get uh, some uh, satisfaction from that. And we do get a, a temporary sense of satisfaction through that level of activity engagement. But it's uh, it's not one that leads to um, a long-term sense of peace and stability. So, if we want to be able to use meditation, uh, right mindfulness and right concentration is is you know a basis for really honing in and developing the interior. We have to create an external environment that's supportive of that. We can't just segment our lives into you know my normal life and my life on retreat or my normal life and my meditation practice. Um, they have to be completely integrated with each other. So that, you know, even uh, in, in uh, the lay life, um, what measures can, can we take? What measures are possible to you know, reduce distraction, reduce uh, complexity? Uh, and steer ourselves back towards uh, what's what's just what do I really need just to uh, have a, uh, a relatively uh, disentangled life um, such that it uh, supports this quality of, of moving towards inner stillness to under, inner understanding um, and inner contentment that's not dependent on uh, external circumstances. Uh, it's not dependent on, um, you know, satisfying our, our, our cravings or our aversions, getting away from those things that are unpleasant. What, how can I just simplify things um, to support that, that practice? So we, you know, look for ways to um, disentangle, to disengage, support ourselves with being around good people. And... Um, and question, you know, um, what's what's the most important thing in our life? What are we going to take with us when when that time comes for us to check out of this lifetime? Um, you know, you're not 
taking any of our possessions, our material goods. We're not taking any of our relationships with people. Um, uh, we'll have to say goodbye to everything uh, in the world around us. We we'll have to say goodbye to our own bodies. You know, this body is not ours to take with us wherever we go. Uh, all these thoughts and uh, feelings and um, emotional states um, are ephemeral. Uh, but the things that we do take with us are, are those inner tendencies towards either confusion and, and uh, greed and aversion, or on the positive side, all of the qualities of uh, kindness and goodness and compassion uh, and um, you know generosity, virtue, um, those tendencies of mind uh, that we've developed, uh, we take those with us too. So. Um, how do we want to spend our lives uh, preparing for that time when the, when the big transition happens? What do we want to take with us? Uh, and we adjust our lives uh, to meet that goal. And as we do that, um, there's this growing sense of, of contentment because uh, we're developing those qualities inside and let it, uh, qualities inside that lead to that long-term sense of stability and peacefulness uh, accompanied by uh, a, a growing uh, sense of, of wisdom, of discernment um, that uh, allows us to choose uh, what we want to bring into our, uh, into our hearts and to let go of the things that uh, bring pain and difficulty and suffering for ourselves, for other people, uh, and uh, slowly replace it with bringing into the heart uh, those qualities that produce a sense of ease and peace and, and, and goodness now and serve uh, a basis for uh, a peaceful uh, transition to whatever comes after after this particular life. So using those heavenly messengers to, to really inspire us and, 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 and uh, motivate us to um, let go of, of that which we hold on to, hoping that will give us uh, comfort and peace, uh, but really is, is quite temporary and moving towards the, the development of uh, those qualities that are long-term sustaining and serve to uh, as a basis for developing uh, wisdom and understanding and, and true freedom of mind. And with that, just in that process alone, even if you're far short of the goal um, of complete peace, then but uh, it's a it's a motivation all along the way because as we develop a path and realize some of the benefits, uh, this great uh, sense of ease of mind. Uh, starts to uh, to come into our lives, even just through keeping of precepts and, and, and trying to generate a few moments of loving kindness. Uh, our our uh, seeds that are planted in in our chitta, our heart, um, to establish that uh, skillful, wholesome uh, state of mind that becomes a basis um, for uh, our practice and for how we operate in the world. Little by little, it's, a, it's this gradual process of uh, developing a sense of um, peace and, and contentment um, in our lives. 
So it's it has to be done with you know <coughs> a sense of commitment and a sense of you know, not wanting to compromise uh, uh, this opportunity that we have as human beings. Many of us are getting into later years in life. In, in my early 60s now, <coughs> seen enough to know that uh, it's not that far from the end. Uh, others are in that same position. So to to use these reflections uh, as, as motivations to, to keep us going and, and you know, how do we want to uh, use the time in this in this world? Uh, we've been given this opportunity of you know, enough material comfort. We've got the requisites that we need to live a relatively comfortable life. And we've got the opportunity to hear Dhamma and to practice Dhamma. We've got the teachings, we've got intact sense faculties to, to be able to understand and reflect human capacity to be able to reflect on these things. And, um, you know, it's all here. <laughs> it's all here, so. You know, let's take advantage of it and, and make the most of uh, what a human life can be. So I think that's sort of enough rambling for now. Um, but just would love, like to open it up to if uh, people have any reflections or questions or thoughts to share along this or other lines of Dhamma. wondering if you could talk a little bit about when we practice loving kindness um, and there comes a point where um, we can recognize that something is very wrong and maybe should we be activated to do something about it? Should we, what, I, I mean, is there some kind of guide to know when it's time to take some kind of action? Mm-hmm or speak to something rather than just send loving kindness towards it. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a kind of um, skill that uh, one develops over time and intuitively, you know, it's not necessarily a real program around it, but um, you know the the balance between uh, internal reflection uh, and development of wholesome mind space versus uh, when is it time to bring it into in- engagement uh, is um, is kind of a case by case or situation by situation um, kind of process. Um, what I do have a sense of is, is that, you know, any time um, we choose to speak or act or speak up to something that we have a, a strong feeling for, you know, an injustice or um, a difficult situation or when uh, somebody is causing harm, say, to other people, um, that 
if we choose to respond while there is that uh, sense of, say, indignation uh, or uh, alarm uh, or, uh, you know, our own uh, you know, sense of, of uh, if there's any kind of dose or any kind of aversion uh, in there and we choose to act and speak when that's at the basis, and most of the time it's going to cause some, some harm. Um, uh, you know, the inner state of mind, you know, right, there's, there is, you know, a lot of us get caught up in righteous indignation and there's the righteous quality which we want to address, but the indignation part is still there too. So, uh, we have to get rid of the indignation before we can truly be effective. Uh, so, um, just being very cautious and being very careful when we choose to speak, when we choose to act uh, to, to address a, a difficult situation. Um, you know, a lot of it's going to depend on what the particular situation is and if there's like immediate and, you know, immediate threat to, to life, safety, well-being, then of course we would probably end up acting that sooner, maybe before we're completely clear <laughs> on inside of ourselves, uh, just to prevent big damage. Um, but if it's you know something more subtle, um, then it's uh, very useful to let the emotions uh, cool to a um, you know a handleable level at least. Um, you may not be able to completely get rid of every every drop of, of anger or aversion before it's time to say something, but at least to get a handle on what's going on and where we're coming from. Um, and then to um, be very clear not only to, to speak the truth, uh, but to uh, make sure that it's going to be useful and that the other person or group or whatever is in a state where they can hear it. So if it's a state of mutual contention and there's a lot of anger going back and forth, then it's not likely to go very far. Um, so it has to be uh, done with that sense of, of, okay, is this not only true, but is it going to be useful? Uh, and then the right timing you know, is very important. These are all guidelines from the Buddhist, <laughs> Buddhist teachings. You know, is it true? Is it the right time? Um, is it useful? And whether or not it might end up being somewhat painful, um, uh, even if it, if it will be beneficial, if you're fairly certain it will be beneficial, and you can do it with a, a sense of clarity and at least not gross levels of, of aversion and anger, you know, as much kindness as one can do, then one chooses the right time to say it or to engage in it or to address it as an issue. Um, and that's when you're going to be the most effective. You know. It's just coming from a sense of ideology, uh, but the emotional tone isn't attended to, then nine times out of ten, the message is going to get lost in the emotion. You see that happening a lot these days. You know, emotions are pretty intense in the, in the you know, world around us. These days. There's a whole lot of, you know, 
emotion and anger and craziness uh, going back and forth on all sides of the political social spectrum and uh, it's, uh, those aren't the ones that I find myself listening to is the, is the people who are listening feeling the difficulty and responding with that sense of care and concern and, and need to speak but with a sense of uh, uh, not just kindness but you know wisdom wisdom accompanied by kindness you know that, that is really that's what speaks and that's what has a has a true effect I think but we gotta get out of the way we gotta get ourselves out of the way <laughs> to do that well Just wondering how, how do you get yourself out of the way? <laughs> <laughs> that's kind of you know that's the practice. <laughs> that's the whole practice, really, in a sense. Uh, it's it's coming to you know just that slow, constant recollection and reflection that. Um, of questioning the whole uh, what it is that we think we have control over, what it is that we think who we are, you know, that definition of, of uh, re-examining that assumption that um, uh, I am this body, I am these feelings, I have control over this body, it's mine, I have control over these patterns, these emotions, uh, these mental conditions that we have um, and repetitively um, just questioning uh, that assumption of um, uh, that you know there is this permanent unchanging uh, identity in relation to any of our uh, experience of this body and this mind um, and then that starts to drift into all the views and opinions and ideas and conceptions, conceivings of ourselves and of our relationship to the world around us. Uh, this is very, you know, this is like deep practice. <laughs> um, and it's a, you know, it's the loosening, the gradual loosening of that um, perceptual pattern, the whole uh, identification that we have uh, and the sense of self that forms from that um, is a perception uh, and it too changes, it too morphs, it's not static uh, and you know, that level of insight and wisdom comes in time you know, with uh, the development of uh, all, the other, all the factors of the path so that our mind can settle uh, and be quite still and peaceful to see these very subtle patterns uh, of self-identification and how they manifest in, in even the most subtle ways uh, and how the more we identify with certain conditions of body and mind the more we separate ourselves 
from other people because we create a perception of them as separate identities and separate beings um, as well. It creates this duality. Uh, the more we let go of that in relation to our body and mind, the more we see that that's a universal truth for other people as well. And that all of their, what we perceive as their um, shortcomings or their wrong ideas or their harmful behaviors or whatever, those are just patterns that are absolutely no different from our patterns. Uh, they're kind of a different form and they manifest in a different way. But conditioned patterns are conditioned patterns. They're uh, changing. Uh, they're unsatisfactory as a place of, of refuge, looking for stability. They're not who we are. Similarly, that person outside of us who's maybe acting in different ways that we don't like or that we think are harmful, they're, they're under the same flow of, of uh, confusion that we are. It's coming out in different ways. They have different views, different values. Um, but it's all the same kind of dukkha. It's all the same uh, misapprehension of reality. It's all the same level of assumptions of uh, where we can find peace and happiness and stability. Um, their particular set of confusions and delusions and greeds and hatreds and aversions are just a bit different from ours. Mm-hmm. But they're seeking the same happiness that we are, but in a way that maybe uh, you know, that we perceive as more harmful and difficult. But at the core, at the base, they're no different than we are. And the more we realize that in ourselves, the more we have compassion for how other people are caught in that same sense of identity. Uh, and so it's that really that true understanding over time and persistent practice and and just the willingness not to buy into it in ourselves um, that gives us the understanding and the wisdom to, to let go of that, that form of self-identity and then uh, we don't pigeonhole other people into that same into that same box and that gives them the space to open up and start to see things too if, if we can provide that example in our relationships with other people then it gives them the opportunity to open to that as well so it seems that the more that we become aware of all the suffering in the world and the more our compassion reaches out to that what I struggle with is knowing when I have done enough or when I've given enough and finding a balance between self-care and self-indulgence and not just feeling that I never can do enough. How how does one work with that? I I would really love some guidance on that. Well, I think, I mean, just to the... uh kind of a stark realization and the understanding is that you probably can never do enough. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. We sometimes underestimate ourselves and, and you know, we, we often can do a lot more than we think we can do, but it doesn't come from a sense of 
of uh, you know dogged striving and that kind of uh, you know ideological effort uh, you know based on some sort of theoretical idea of, of what we should be able to do and, and the things that need to be done and the, the suffering that's in the world and, and, and how we need to, to solve that. Uh, it just comes from our own deep understanding of our own suffering. If we don't understand in ourselves, you know, what causes suffering deeply, um, then it's very difficult to help other people who are suffering. So that real deep penetration of the personal truth inside of ourselves is the basis of, um, of how we can understand truly other people's suffering, not through our own projections. But then with that deep understanding inside of ourselves, there will rise the, the energy um, to help uh, other people uh, and to have that sense of compassion, but it's tempered uh, with, with wisdom. I think I'm not talking so much about others suffering, but others need. You know, it's not like it's greed, hatred, and delusion. It's hunger. It's violence. It's being oppressed. That sort of pain in the world that I don't have that kind of pain in my life. I have enough. But I feel like I can never do enough or give enough to help relieve that kind of pain in the world. Yeah, I, I think that's a you know that's a reality. That yeah. is true. You can't. You know, you can do what you have the capacity to do on an individual basis, and and the capacity to understand uh, those drives for the human drive uh, or the human condition. Um, and you can help uh, to some extent um, by making yourself available to the extent that you as one human being have the capacity and the energy to do that. But um, uh, you can't get lost in, in the ideology that you know you should be able to help everybody or more people or you know, that, that you should have some capacity as a single individual that, that you don't have. You know, that just sets up a unrealistic expectation that, you know, it's just going to backfire on you and make, you know, incapacitate your abilities to help even more. I mean, even the Buddha, you know, whose teachings are still, you know, intact 2,500 years after his teaching, you know, and his deep Realization and the, and the amount of goodness that he was able to uh, bring into the world. He didn't solve all the people's problems, you know. There's, you know, the, the force of, of uh, confusion, the force of greed, hatred, delusion is, is, you know, overwhelmingly strong. Even a Buddha can't cure the world's suffering. They can only show a path. One can only show a path, and that's where we have to be too, we have to be clear enough in our own practice and our own understanding of what really leads to the end of suffering to be able to show it to people who are able to understand it. You know, and not everybody is in that position uh, to be able to, to fully understand. But I mean we close our hearts to them. But it means we have the wisdom to to know when we can help and when we don't have that capacity in ourselves to do that.
know, and one human being has limited energies, limited capacity uh, to do that. So you do what you can do, and you use a gauge of, you know, your own energy, your own uh, inner clarity, uh, and you remain open to helping when you can, but um, you can't let yourself you know, get involved with that thought world if I'm not doing enough. So, I mean, it, doesn't, it doesn't help, it doesn't go anywhere. You can still be open to the suffering of other beings, but it's the quality of equanimity that is, you know, that's the mature of those four Brahma Viharas, the four divine abidances. It's the, it's the one that takes all of that kindness and compassion and joy at other people's success and it takes it with that wisdom, that understanding that, um, you know, to, you know, to a, a, a big extent people live according to their own kama, their own, uh, you know, uh, habits of mind. And that you can do your best through your own understanding to help those who want to understand, but you um, you can't solve everybody else's problem. You can find a way to solve your own dilemma, share that with others, offer help and compassion, but with the realization that. Um, there need to be certain causes and conditions for people to also be ready to receive it. And you can't control that. That's the wisdom component. That makes some sense? You don't look convinced. <laughs> I, I think we're kind of talking at cross-purposes in um, some ways. Uh, but I think equanimity may be yeah. part of the key, and uh, I think maybe it's my Protestant guilt uh, ah. upbringing, <laughs> you know, that... Because uh, I should do more. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It, it's very hard to overcome that early conditioning. Yeah. Well, you know, you can keep trying to, and you can keep on <laughs> beating yourself up and yeah. criticizing yourself and going into a guilt trip, or you can realize yeah. that I haven't got you anywhere so yeah, far. Yeah, I mean, definitely the guilt yeah. trip is my suffering. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I was talking with G on the way uh, down about, you know, that's a, that's a very strong Western mind state, mind tendency, the guilt trip, and uh, the, uh, the, our guiding elder to Bhaiviri Ajahn Pasano, uh, as a young monk, was once uh, traveling with a, a very senior, very well-known Thai monk to the West, uh, and he was acting as his translator, and uh, one of the questions that came up, I think they were in England, um, from one of the, uh, the people in the Sangha there was, you know, along the lines of, you know, how to deal with guilt and, you know, the process of, you know, the suffering that goes along with that and, and how to handle that. And Ajahn Pasano translated the question to the senior monk and it's sort of like, 
I don't understand what you're talking about. What, what is what is what is this guilt? Not impossible to describe to him the process that people go through. You know, the mental contortions and the, the self-blaming and self-criticism and the you know the measuring oneself up against impossible standards and all that kind of stuff to this to the senior time Duncan. His response was, "Oh, that's that that's very bad. Tell them they shouldn't do that." <laughs> <laughs> Just adds another should. <laughs> <laughs> but it's like self caring should. It's yeah, sort of yeah. like, like, oh I my gosh. It's, it's a compassionate way of yeah. saying, oh man, you know, that's painful. Yeah. You know, that's recognizing the dukkha of, of uh, that kind of self judgment. You know, sometimes, somehow we as Westerners think that. Uh, we shouldn't blame everybody else, but it's okay to, to blame ourselves, or it's okay to criticize ourselves, but somehow that's okay. Yeah, but that's, you know, it's no, you know, it's no different. It's still painful. And you have to add another layer of why well, I shouldn't do that, but, you know, it's just sort of like looking at that and thinking, oh, well, that's a, that's just a, that's a condition state of mind, that's a habit, that's a tendency that I picked up in my culture, um, and I don't need to do that. I don't need to do that any more than I need to blame everybody else for all the problems in the world. Yes. Blaming others, blaming myself, you know, criticizing others, criticizing myself, it's all the same. It's just this kind of aversive state of mind that is unpleasant. It doesn't mean it's bad or wrong, it's just Unskillful. It, yeah, or, it, yeah, so, um, yeah, it's just, uh, it doesn't result in happiness. <laughs> yeah. right. So the antidote to that is, is like just um, treating yourself the way that you would think you would like to treat other people who are caught in the same thing. Right? So like mm-hmm. having that sense of uh, compassion for that mindset, that habitual mindset that's saying you're not doing enough. It's like, oh, well, is that the voice of the Buddha? <laughs> <laughs> Would the Buddha say that? Nah, that's Mara. <laughs> I know you, Mara. I don't have to listen. And then you know, smile and give yourself some space. There's that one again. There's that voice again. I don't have to, I don't have to believe that one. Jumping off of Heidi's question, um, maybe this isn't very well formed, but in my mind, but uh, you know, and often in um, the late tradition and practices led, that they kind of include this practice of forgiveness. Mm-hmm. And um, and I'm wondering if you feel like that is useful for the Western mind, and if so, how you bring that into the monastery and monastic practice. Oh, yeah, forgiveness, not just for the Western mind, but for the human mind, anybody's mind. Um, yeah, um, you know, because it's so easy to uh, cling on to those uh, 
injustices in our life or those uh, situations where we've had painful experiences with usually with other people um, and our own selves of course too and that um, yes that 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 clinging that holding uh, to a conceived idea of the way things should have been the way things should be it's not right it's not fair and it's that kind of uh, mental engagement and proliferation with that underlying yeah, a state of hurt um, that's usually the basis of, of anger or frustration or irritation you know there's usually hurt uh, underneath there and, and that, um, you know, to let go of that hurt well actually I was going to say to let go of that hurt we need to forgive but to actually forgive we need to let go of the hurt uh, which means experiencing it uh, and being honest with it and owning up to it um, and you know not forgiving is what keeps us essentially entangled and karmically connected to the source of that the source of that that hurt that difficulty um, and it's till it's not till we can personally recognize and understand and experience the painfulness of, of whatever it was that uh, that happened um, that we could start to let go of it and then that release of the grasp that serves as a basis for us to forgive you know you know I think there's a distinction that I've often heard that's very useful you know, um, that say if it's a situation with another being then reconciliation is sort of the most mature form of resolution that we can can take uh, and, but that involves engagement with the other person to you know express mutually express and mutually accept each other's experience and maybe what happened uh, and to understand the values that those interactions were coming from you know what was the person trying to to get in a sense from from that uh, that engagement and to come to some sort of understanding of each other's experience to the point where you oh okay now I see what happened both inside myself and inside you and you can both release it but if you can't do that you know if it's, the situation doesn't work that way or the person isn't amenable to that or they're not in your life anymore and you can still um, work towards you know uh, releasing yourself from that clinging that holding that karmic connection to that situation to that event to that person by just doing the process inside yourself with that form of, of forgiveness but um, until you uh, can touch you know the painfulness without going through the mental proliferations of justification of rewriting the past you know saying what one should have done what they should have done what they should have done what, until you can touch the, the painfulness of it on a, on a feeling level it's going to be very hard to undo those those mental patterns that lead to clinging and, and non-forgiveness so it's giving yourself a lot of space. Essentially, it's developing that that heart of and space of, of, of kindness for your own experience. 
and to allow it to be there without pushing it away. Now it sounds like also just letting go of control of the situation, yeah. know, whether it's in your own mind or elsewhere. Yeah, yeah. When the situations are such that nothing can be done, it's that gradual sense of, well, I can keep holding on to this, and it can keep being painful, or I can you know, work towards understanding that, okay, the past is the past. Mm-hmm. Um, it's happened, it's difficult, it's painful, mm-hmm. and it's a memory. What I'm experiencing now is a memory. It's not the real event. Well, at some level, it is just a way of saying, you know, and if you can come to that level of, of understanding, that's, you know, that's high level, that's great. Um, <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> not quite there yet. I'm not quite there yet. <laughs> um, but it's a good thing to reflect on, you know. Um, and the Buddha, you know, suggests that as a, as a very good reflection because, uh, you know, none of us are ever going to be free from having to experience that and can't escape that. So just realizing that um, if you're going to be alive <laughs> in this world, you know, people are going to blame you for things, people are going to criticize you for things. Uh, there's a great Dhammapada uh, quote uh, saying it's, it's sort of like, uh, some people, some people uh, talk too much and they get criticized for that. Some people talk too little, and they get criticized for that. Some people speak just the right amount, and they get criticized for that. <laughs> Everyone is criticized. <laughs> <laughs> so it's the you know praise and blame, or this is it. This is human mind. And if you buy into to praise and nice speech and people supporting you and all saying good things, if you buy into that and you know kind of indulge in that feeling, then to the equal amount on the other side when people criticize you, you're going to feel the, the difficulty of that. So it doesn't mean we just kind of tune out and turn ourselves off to the, to the world around us, you know, and go into indifference, but, but uh, just to realize that, you know, people say harsh things, people say critical things, and they hurt. You know? um, and then to you know, the same kind of spaciousness and kind of say, Part of being a human being, I can't escape that. But uh, to let it be, and you know, uh, try not to uh, move into that. And this is where you know <coughs> the meditation practice and the development of spaciousness of mind and the, the breadth of mind that say that is the loving kindness, the compassionate states of mind that we can slowly develop. That's, it's that spaciousness in the mind um, that lets all the painful things, as well as the, the super attractive, pleasant things, have their time arise and pass away without clinging to it, without holding to it. So you'll never escape it, it'll never stop, but, but how you receive it and how you hold it, and the capacity to not 
get drawn into proliferative suffering around it uh, is what is what you have to control over. Pain is suffering. I mean, pain is inevitable. Suffering is optional. Okay. I know you have been <coughs> tending and and being meditations for many 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 years, and you've been constantly meditating. So different than I don't know others of you, but me, like we mentioned before, like okay, I'll go to the retreat for thirty days, and then you feel like you know your soul, you feel it clean, yeah. and then you come back home, and then it kind of kind of deepest away. Yeah, yeah. I want to learn from your experience. <coughs> you right now, <coughs> you ever have a day that you feel frustrated, like the mind? Do I? Yeah. Yes. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> Because sometimes I'm so hard at myself. Like I meditate. I'm okay. I aim for to be like you know mindful and be still. Yeah. Nothing can disturb my mind easily. Uh-huh. Like for example, like this morning, like I got up and I meditate. Okay, today I'm gonna practice. You know, be mindful and go to aim thought that way. Like mm-hmm. the mind to be still. And then when I go online, I use a computer, and it just give me a big testing like spin. <laughs> <laughs> and then it's that kind of get my mind because mm-hmm. like, like, like got so mad, and, and then I look at myself, why did you get so mad? Well, nothing here would make you angry, but I do. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. I feel bad about my reaction to that. Like I feel like, oh, you don't have enough wisdom to just deal with the little thing. Mm-hmm. So, well. That last comment that you made is the one that you can slowly start to work on not to do. You know, we're human beings, and, and sometimes we get ourselves into situations where, you know, the world is a frustrating place. Sangsara is imperfect, <laughs> and you know, until we're arahants, you know, well, at least until we're, you know, non-returners, <laughs> we're still going to experience. Uh, Uh, you know, uh, aversion and and some level of desire and some level of aversion. You know, um, and to just slowly realize that these are just habitual patterns of mind. This is what keeps us rolling through samsara, rolling through you know the cycles of suffering. Yeah, because um, I know it's not the right way to react and to live. You know, like if I aim toward, you know, peacefulness or, or be still. Like, like when you say, for example, like if you go be with nature, you know, you look at the mountain and it's mm-hmm. stillness. That's what I aim for, like to my in my soul mm-hmm. and in my mind. Mm-hmm. But the way I live it, just like far beyond, like. This way I want to go and here because I am. It just sometimes it gets really, really, uh, really frustrated. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's yes. It's uh, you know that's the dilemma that we find ourselves in, and that's you know uh, that's why we have to constantly re-examine: Are we putting ourselves in the best situation? Um, if we're truly seeking, you know, stability and long-term peace, then Um, sometimes we have to adjust the circumstances, our external circumstances, to best support that. You know, we all have to have 
a livelihood or they're engaged in some way in the world, but you have to have some sort of sense of is there another way that I can, can do this so that my life is simpler, so that I can reduce the, the level of uh, input and stimulation that keeps me confused, you know, that prevents me from seeing more clearly, that prevents me from having a level of simplicity in my life that allows for that more open state of mind where I can see things more clearly and act more skillfully. So, you know, sometimes you have to make some difficult changes in your external circumstance to say, okay, well, it doesn't feel like I can do anything else or that I can get out of this situation, but really, is it worth it? And sometimes we have to say, okay, well, I'm going to do whatever it takes to, to make a change in my my livelihood, in my job, in my relational world, and, you know, that's what's causing so much trouble. Whatever it is that is not a support of external circumstances, it's taking us away from that ability to, to be in the world the way that we want to make the best use of it then sometimes we have to make some tough decisions and just say, okay, well, maybe there's a a simpler way of being, maybe there's another livelihood, another job, another way, and maybe I won't get as much money, and maybe I'll have to, you know, simplify and not have as much comfort or or wealth or whatever. I I think I myself... I believe I can live simply, but then I kind of get involved with other people. Yeah. And then, of course, like especially family, like yeah, asking yeah. for help and stuff. And I don't have enough wisdom to say, is it the right thing to do to help them? And it is all the things that I get lost in their story. Yeah. And now it's just get really, yeah. you know, clearly. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, in some ways, you have to live out some aspects of your kama, uh, and and realize that certain things have been set in motion that have to kind of play out. But there are also times when you can take opportunities to to move out of that, uh, and you, know, you have to you have to take you have to be clear enough to take advantage of those times, and not to just get. I mean, that's another level, you know, of of should, I should be this way, I should do this, you know, family tradition says that I should stay in this situation that I know is not skillful for myself. Um, and at some point, I mean, the Buddha had to do that, you know, he bucked all the social trends and the odds and, you know, the, the pressure for him to, uh, you know, live out his life as a, uh, you know, household member, you know, a family man and a and a leader of the world. He had to say, okay, well, I think I've done this long enough. Isn't there another way? You know, it doesn't mean you, you take unskillful, neglectful action, you know, or reckless action, but you have to sometimes make some clear choices. Not easy. My going forth was, you know, I certainly went through my trials of. <laughs> <laughs>
Should I do this? Shouldn't I do this? What are you doing? You get that message from everybody. Like, are you crazy? (laughs) (laughs) Maybe. (laughs) But my heart says, I do it. Ajahn, it's uh, time to close. Yeah, I know fine. Thank you. Okay, so I'll let you close up. I don't know if you have any closing announcements. Um, No other than I would encourage people, if you want to hear more and uh, continue this conversation, please come by tomorrow, 9.30, right? 9.30. And offering a meal offering at noon. Yeah, we'll have some opportunities to have sitting meditation and and few reflections, questions, maybe a little walking meditation in the afternoon. So, just enjoying peace, quiet, and reflection. Good friendship. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.